for several weeks, there's been a couple of uh, themes that have been resonating in my, in my spirit quite a little bit. And I want to speak on one of those this morning in a message that I've simply called the Age of Rage. Turn to uh, the New Testament book of Ephesians, Paul's letter to the Ephesians, chapter 4, verse 20, uh, 26. I'm going to read a couple verses here for you this morning. They're short verses, but very powerful. Paul is speaking about a lifestyle, the kind of a lifestyle across the, an entirety of a church that... Uh, a life, the kind that builds one another up, that encourages, that, 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 that's the kind of a lifestyle that can speak into other people's lives and to come alongside that person with, uh, with a blessing that only, really only you perhaps can bring. And I, I think there's so much room for that in any congregation, ours included, and anybody else's. But this is a wonderful thing that God has given to each one of us, this, uh, this opportunity to bless people's lives, to, to lift people up, to, to, to just be an encourager. You know, afterwards, after this service is over, we're going to spend time around, uh, uh, we always have a table full of things to chew on and everything else and coffee and all of that business. And, and I, this is an incredible time for a church. This is an amazing time for a, a body of believers like this to be able to come alongside a variety of people. And, and sometimes these are people that you don't even know well, but, but, uh, but I think you can count on God giving you a, a word of blessing and things like that that can make a difference in that person's life. That's why I, I, the one thing, one of the things, well, there are many things, but this is one of the great things I think about this congregation. There's a lot of churches when the pastor says amen, I mean, they clear the building. And uh, uh, in five minutes after amen, uh, this place is empty and, and uh, you know, you're looking around and say, where'd they all go? And this is a different place. Five minutes after I say amen, I mean, they're still lined up back there and hoping that we beat the kids' church and, uh, you know, and all of these things. And people stand around here for another 45 minutes to an hour and, and, and sharing and blessing one another and encouraging one another. And, I, and this, is, this, is a, this is an incredible thing. This is an amazing thing. And I think sometimes we just sort of take it a little bit for granted probably, but it, it's really a remarkable thing. Let me read my text to you. I've been preaching this to myself this week. And, uh, you know, <laughs> you should preach it to yourself, and if you fall under conviction, then you probably got the right idea. Well, I think I got the right idea here. So, okay, here we go. Verse 26, it says, Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your wrath. Verse 27, Nor give place to the devil. This is a message about the age of rage. I see the evidence of rage in so many areas of our, of our, of our world. Rage. I, I don't think I've noticed it until just recent 
recent, uh, I don't know, months or maybe a year or two or whatever it is, uh, we've always had people who want to protest something or, or speak out against something. And they don't always have to be a protest, but they want, to, they want to level their support or whatever it is. But these have taken on another edge. And it's the edge of rage. It's the edge of anger. We see that, we see that, and you know, I'm going to give you something really obvious here. You see it, I see it. We see that in our, in our government. There's a rage, there's an anger. It's not about getting a, something done or something to, to work on. It's about who can be the best and who can beat out who and all of these things. Rage, anger. And Christians aren't immune from this, by the way. You know, I mean, just because we, we know Jesus and, and, uh, and speak about loving Jesus does not mean that anger doesn't influence our lives and things like that. And if we're pushed far enough, that anger sometimes erupts into a volcano. I always have loved the Peanuts cartoon strip. And Lucy, Charlie Brown. And um, Lucy, uh, Lucy was telling Charlie Brown one day, she said, I hate everything. I hate everybody, and I hate the whole world. Charlie says, but I thought you had inner peace. Lucy replies, I do have inner peace but I still have outer obnoxiousness. <laughs> Boy, does that fit, huh? So Philippians chapter 4, verse 26 is embedded in midst of a passage on how church members are supposed to build one another up as the body of Christ. So what are the things that make you angry? What are the things that, that pushes your buttons what are the things that, uh, uh, that, that just tick you off to no end? And when is anger the right response? Because let's face it, most of us, if we're pushed hard enough, we're going to respond in some way. And I'm sure there might be some people in, that would say, well, we should never get angry because God doesn't get angry and Jesus never got angry or anything like that. But this is a message that is going to present a different viewpoint on this, on this whole thing. I think it's going to surprise perhaps a few. I suggest a couple of viewpoints. First of all, it's what I call God-honoring anger. That is unselfish. It's an, it's an anger that has no element of self-interest connected to it. Anger that is God-honoring and is deeply, in, deeply involved in something else, someone else. Take a look at Mark chapter 11. There's an incident here, and Jesus was involved in it. And the subtitle probably in your, in your chapter uh, outline is that Jesus cleanses the temple. Jesus expressed anger where people were exploiting people who were coming to worship and these religious merchants were out here. Jesus, God said, my house is supposed to be a house of prayer. It's supposed to be a house of worship 
And you people, you people, and he was addressing these people. He wasn't mad at the people. He was mad at what they were doing. He was mad at, obviously, the religious leaders who was getting a cut off of this whole thing. And the anger of Jesus was directed at people who were literally mistreating, even desecrating the Father's house. God-honoring anger does not nurse grudges. Write that one down. Any kind of anger that is held over for the second day is the kind of an anger that puts us in a very dangerous kind of a pathway that could open the door to vengeance, to violence, to egotistical kind of pride, and other things. It also opens the door for the enemy of our souls to come in and begin to, begin to mess with us, if you will. Demonic influence. It opens the door. And we need to understand this. And over a period of time, this anger can lead to holding a grudge, and then it can move into what we call a root of bitterness. And it's a poisonous kind of a combination. Listen to me. Anger that is held on does not improve with age. It's the kind of anger that can contaminate your judgment. It can kill a relationship. We're warned in Hebrews chapter 12 and in verse 15, see to it that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it we become defiled. Last thing here, bitterness is a contagious kind of a poison, and it can definitely lead you away from God. This is serious stuff, folks, really serious stuff. We should not just sort of nod at it. We should not just sort of brush it off or anything. These are serious implications connected with anger, with bitterness, with vengeance, with all of these other things. Second day anger that is rehearsed becomes hate, and it can occupy a person's heart. It's like spoiled food, and it stinks the longer you keep it, right? It smells the longer you carry it around, and this anger can sabotage your work, and it can gouge a rut into your soul. It's very serious. God-honoring anger can be thought of as a gift to combat sin or evil or, or injustice. You name a, a subject, for instance, for instance, like pornography or the lack of morality or, or abortion or something like that, and there is an anger over what is happening in that, and that anger does something, it leads us to do something about that. That's a different kind of an anger. That's a, that's a God-honoring trait and characteristic of this anger. We have people right here in this church that are involved in informed choice in Fort Dodge. Why? Because I think they saw the injustice. They saw, the, saw all of the situations surrounding abortion, and they said, I want to do something about it. And they are doing something about it. And they're, and they're making a difference. Here's some practical thoughts to have God-honoring anger. Here we go. Do speak up when there's an issue that's important to you. If you are simply silent, it can move to deeper anger. I was just talking, I, I thought about this. And I don't know if uh, Kelly Butcher is 
Kelly here today? No, I saw Ben, but I didn't see her. But uh, Kelly, Kelly is deeply involved, passionately involved with the whole human trafficking uh, topic, and it's huge. And I think she spends about every other Sunday at, uh, in, in, in another community dealing with this, and then she's here some and there some. But the anger, the anger caused her to say, I'm going to do something about this. And that's good. Don't strike while the iron is hot. You know, there are some things that you need to strike while the iron is hot, but this isn't one of them. What you need here is there's a, no worse time to initiate a conversation. If you think the volcano is about to rough, you need to step back and cool down and allow those passions to, to simmer down and to, and to calm down so that you can think clearly and respond properly. Number three, no below-the-belt tactics. None of this blaming business or labeling or interrogating or ridiculing, things like this. Number four, be careful in using the I language. I just learned this this week as I was studying. Don't say, I think you're a terrible person. Now, I I think that's going to stir it up. Instead, say something. When you say things like that, I feel confused about your intent. That takes the fire down and the fire out of that whole situation. Number five, don't expect to change to take place immediately, especially if you're dealing with some kind of a hit-and-run guy who comes roaring up to you and, and says, I have this against you and I'm so upset at you and blah, 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 and then roars off. That's called hit-and-run. So that change is not going to come all that quick. But it can come, but it's not going to be all that immediate. I believe there are a lot of people that believe it's never appropriate to become angry. First of all, anger is a normal and accepted kind of a thing and response as long as we display it in a consistent way of being called a Christian. I want you to note some of the following in which God expresses his anger. I'm not sure if you're aware of this. God was very angry at Moses because of his unbelief, and he resisted in going to Egypt. In fact, he was just really irked at Moses. God was angered by the mistreatment of helpless and uh, people who are perhaps who are widows or orphans or something like that. He was angry. Jesus was angry at the Pharisees because of the hardness of their heart. He showed anger in cleansing the temple. Paul was angry when a bunch of new Christians at Galatia started to embrace false teaching. He became angry. But in each of these cases, the anger led to a positive thing. It wasn't just, I'm going to blow up in front of you, and and when I do, I'm going to blow you away at the same time. It was something that led to a positive outcome, a positive result. The Bible never tells us that we can be angry. I'm, I'm sorry, never tells us that we cannot be angry. James chapter 1 and verse 19 says, to be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. You see the progression there in that? 
In my text, Paul says, be angry and sin not. Righteous anger can become unrighteous anger very easily in a couple of ways. We can vent that anger. Venting that anger is, is, is that kind of that explosive kind of a thing. Or we can internalize that anger. In other words, we, the, and the two opposites, they're very opposite. One is known as blowing up and the other one is clamming up. And both of them are dangerous. Both of them carry great risks. When you blow up, your emotional energy is aimed and then fired at somebody else. And when we clam up, when we clam up all, of that, <clears throat> all of that same energy is released inside of you. That's probably why some people have ulcers. That's why, why some people suffer from various kinds of, uh, of illnesses and things like that. This anger that is consumed within them. When you vent your anger, you're likely to hurt somebody else. And you're probably going to hurt yourself. It's like firing a gun. Some things are going to come out of the end of the barrel, but you also get a recoil from that. Proverbs chapter 29 and verse 11 says, A fool gives full vent to his anger, but the wise man, holding it back, quiets it. It's a good word. Proverbs chapter 29, verse 11. There are some people, there are some people who claim they simply cannot control their anger. And they'll say, listen, pastor, I'm Irish. So I'm, I'm just, I, I just blow up. Well, hold it now. <laughs> You're not going to get away with that. <laughs> that's, that's you talking, and that's, that's conversation. But the Bible isn't going to let you get away with that. The Bible isn't going to X out, uh, X out uh, Ephesians 4.26 just because you're Irish. I suppose we've got some Irish people in here that I've just offended. Like, okay, we're walking out the door. Forget the coffee. Before you walk out, let me give you a copy of this message. If you become exasperated with the kids, how, how, many, how many moms in here, you just hate to hear on the radio, snow day? <laughs> snow day. That means the kids are going to be climbing the walls and the refrigerator and the counter and everything else, and, and you're about ready, I mean, you're about ready, to, I mean, you're ready to lose it. And here's my, the point I want to make. Somebody calls on the phone, it's your friend, and you talk so nice to them, so pleasant. See, it can, you can control this stuff. Internalizing your anger is also a very poor way to deal with it. Ephesians 4.27 says, Don't let the sun go down on your anger. And this is the kind of anger that is internalized and the pressure begins to build. And I mean, it's like that, I mentioned before, like a volcano, it's going to blow off. And it's going to blow ash and lava. It goes everywhere. And it's a mess. And lots of people oftentimes get hurt by it. Let me share with you a couple of things in dealing with anger. I want to leave you with this. You can be solution-oriented in dealing with anger, or you can be problem-oriented. And here's what I mean. Christians who are problem-oriented tend to talk about the problem, 
feel sorry for themselves, start a blame-shifting kind of an operation going, and focus, on their, focus their energy on who's at fault in this. Solution-oriented Christians are this way. They size up a problem. They look away for fixing responsibilities and then try to solve it. There's a big difference, a huge difference. Anger is always sinful when its power is to abuse and to hurt and when it's turned outward or it's pushed inward. Healthy anger never tries to get even. Turn with me just for a moment to Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3, beginning in verse 12. In, these pa- in this passage, in fact, it's a much longer passage than what I want to read this morning, Paul is calling people to a holy life that is consistent with their testimony. In other words, when people say, I'm a Christian, I'm a believer in Christ, I think there's an expectation. And Paul is saying, let's be consistent in our testimony, in our walk with Christ. We're expected to live up to who we are in Jesus. Philippians, or, I'm sorry, Colossians chapter 3, chapter 3. Um, Don Lee, would you return, please? Chapter 3, beginning in verse 12. The Bible says, therefore, as the elect of God, he's talking about us, the people sitting in this room right here, all of you. The elect of God, holy and beloved. Paul loves these people, doesn't he? Calls them holy and beloved. Put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering. Bearing with one another. In other words, somebody comes up to you as a little bit on the obnoxious side. I mean, you just sort of take it. You know, that's just who they are. They're kind of, maybe they're brand new. Maybe they don't know any better. Have you ever met anybody obnoxious in church? I'm the only honest person in this room. Are you serious? Okay, let's twist that out. I want all the obnoxious people to raise your hand right now. Oh my goodness. Bearing with one another. Forgiving one another. If anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you must also do. But above all these things, put on love, which is the bond of perfection. I like that. The bond of perfection. And then verse 15. And verse 15 is going to come up on the screen. I want you to say it with me. Would you do that? Verse 15. And let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to which also you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the peace of God rule your life, your hearts. Amen. Amen. Stand with me, please. You know, before we pray, 
I just want to remind you that we're moving into the Easter season. I mean, seriously fast. We're three weeks away from Easter. And uh, this is the time of year. There are two times a year, Christmas and Easter, in which people, this is just, I mean, this has been surveyed and for years and years, are more apt to come to church during the Easter period and during the Christmas period than at any other time of the year. Let's take advantage of that. Let's take some real advantage of that. There are people, I, I just know this, that are waiting for your invitation and your invitation needs to include something else. We'll sit with you when you come to church. We'll wait for you at the west door or the east door. We'll sit with you and encourage people to come. It's a great time of the year. And at every service, we're going to share the gospel in some way to help people come to know Jesus. It's the most important thing we can do in this church. And so I just want to encourage you along those lines. Would you... Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for today and this message. Father, I guess this is a kind of a message that doesn't necessarily make you want to get up and jump and run and shout. But it's good for our soul. It's good for our life. It's good for us. So, Father, I pray that you take the elements of this, uh, this message this morning and your word, apply it into our lives. Help us. We want to, we want to live in, in a greater capacity for you. It would be for your glory, for your honor. Father, if there's somebody in the room today that's not quite sure where they stand with God, they need their sins forgiven, they recognize something is missing in their life, the missing piece is Jesus. Father, would you help somebody just simply pray, Jesus, come into my life. Come into my heart. I want my sins forgiven this morning. I want to receive you into my life and into my heart as the Savior and Lord of my life. I ask Jesus to come in right now. I mean it with all of my heart. I believe he died for me and he rose from the dead. I accept him, I receive him, and I want to walk with him as my Savior and Lord. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.